All right, you wayward sons and daughters. I don't know if you picked up on this. Somehow I missed picking up on it, but Pastor Joe has us uh, theming this Galatian series off of classic rock songs. And so I had a blast this week taking a walk down memory lane, listening to lots of old rock music, and um, I settled on this one. So I want you to think back, not to 1976, when Kansas released Left Overture, and Carry On Wayward Son was one of the singles from that LP. 1976, that was the year that I got my driver's license. My goodness, that was a long time ago. Don't do the math. Don't do the math on that. But I want you to think back just to the beginning of this year. Just the beginning of this year, January 1st, 2015. And um, what happens at the very beginning of a year for many people is something like this. You know, we have a list of things, improvements we want to make in our life. We have some bad things that maybe we want to give up. We have some good things we want to start doing. And so we make, uh, we make some New Year's resolutions, ways that we would like to see our life change for the good. Now, not everybody does this, but enough of us do it that I, I wonder if uh, any of your resolutions might be included on this list that you see on the screen. And whether they are or they're not, um, what I'd like to focus on is, is how successful making and keeping those New Year's resolutions is. Because I have a sneaking suspicion based on personal experience, based on the fact that I don't do too well in keeping those New Year's resolutions, that, that I'm not the only one that that happens to. I think that, you know, we start off with these good intentions, we make these resolutions, we intend to uh, make improvements in our lives, and then that kind of falls off. I mean, I, I've seen it happen at, at Crunch. It's the gym where I go to work out. Can you take a guess at when the two worst weeks of the year are in terms of overcrowding in the gym? The two worst weeks. Take a wild guess. What do you think? Exactly. The first two weeks of the year. The first two weeks in January. And then after that, people's willpower begins to fade. They start to drop off. And before long, everything is back to normal. All right, so, so my contention is, based on personal experience, based on observation, that even when we have good intentions, even when we intend to make changes in our life for the better, we don't have the willpower to do it. We can't get it done just by our own determination, just by our own self-discipline. We fail at trying to will ourselves into making these improvements. Our willpower isn't powerful enough. Our determination isn't determined enough. Our self-discipline isn't disciplined enough. We can't do it in our own power. And it's not only us. If we look at the Scripture, the Apostle Paul made the same observation about himself. This is what he wrote to the church in Rome. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. 
I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So it's, it's not just our problem. Paul struggled with the same issue. And this summer, as we have been going through the book of Galatians, Pastor Joe has pointed out that Paul has returned time and time again to this dichotomy, this juxtaposition of law and grace. And last week, as we turned the page to the third chapter, Megan explored with us that the same theme and how we are not capable in our own power, under our own will, of living lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And so, in, in dealing with this law versus grace, we have learned that it is through faith that Jesus did on the cross for us what we on our own are unable to do for ourselves. And even this faith that we receive, we can't claim any credit for us because faith is a, it's a what? It's right. Faith is a gift that comes from God. It, it doesn't come from us. And so what I would like for us to do this morning is look further at this juxtaposition of, of law and grace because as we move on to the next section of Galatians chapter 3, Paul addresses the issue once again. So let's look at the passage for today, and then we'll draw some truths from it about the law, and then seek some applications for it to our lives. So we're in Galatians 3, 10 to 24. I'm testing your eyesight today, so uh, I'll read it for you. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you see how this law and grace, law and faith, law and belief, they continue to play out in what the Apostle Paul is, is writing to the, to the Galatians. And, and Paul makes the point once again that, that in our own power, we are unable to live lives that are pleasing to God. We cannot keep the law on our own. And when you think about that, it, it can kind of seem a little bit unfair. It can lead to the question, why would God have given us the law when God knew that we were unable to keep it perfectly, when God knew that the law wasn't able to lead us into the kind of life that would be pleasing to Him, it, it can seem almost cruel, commanding us to do what we are, in fact, incapable of doing. But believing that God isn't cruel 
there must be some other explanation for God giving the law, some other purpose for the law. And there are. In fact, there are three purposes of the law. And the first of those purposes is to serve as a restraining force against evil in the world. If you think back to very early in the Old Testament, after humankind had rebelled against God, after we had broken the intimate relationship we had with our Creator, what the Bible tells us is that humankind grew worse and worse. We rebelled more and more. There was violence and hatred against one another and against the Lord. And finally, God had had too much. He, he was fed up. The Lord determined that He was going to cleanse the earth of the sin and the evil of humankind, and He used a flood to do that. God would preserve our species through one family, the family of Noah and start over again. And then when the flood was over, God promised never to destroy the earth through that means again. Instead, God gave the law to Moses and the Hebrews to serve as a restraining force against the power of evil in the world. The first purpose of the law is to restrain evil and sin in the world. The second purpose of the law is that the very existence of the law makes obvious our need for God's grace, for God's forgiveness. It makes it obvious that we, in and of ourselves, in our own power, in our own determination, are not able to live in ways that are pleasing to God. That's what we've talked about. That's what the verse we cited from Romans points out. That's what God's covenant people, the Israelites, having received the law, that's what they realized over and over and over again. They continued to fail. They continued to come up short. And the law pointed out for them their need for Messiah, their need for a Savior. They weren't able to please God in their own strength. And this second purpose of the law remains true for us today, for you and for me. We, in our own strength, cannot live in a manner that is pleasing to God. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. The third purpose for the law is a, is a positive purpose. For those of us who have received the gift of faith and who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, the law guides us to live in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. That's the positive aspect of the law. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, and one of the things that really sticks with me from a, a children's message years ago is a positive renaming of the Ten Commandments to capture this, this constructive third purpose of the law. The Ten Commandments are, in fact, God's ten best ways to live. They show us how, having trusted Jesus, how having received God's grace and forgiveness, we can orient our lives in such a way that it 
it is pleasing to the Lord. Three purposes of the law. And so what I would like to do, having addressed the law, is now to turn our attention to what our passage for today says is, is so central, and that is faith. And how this purpose of the law intersects with the faith, with our faith, with the gift that we receive, that God gives to us. And what Paul does in speaking about faith is he offers us an example of a person from Scripture. And the, the given name of the person who is this example is Abram. And we meet him way back in the book of Genesis, very early in the Old Testament. We find out in Genesis chapter 11 that Abram was living in a place called Haran, with his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and Lot's family when God spoke to Abram, and this is what the Lord said. But before, before we get to that, so I want, to do, I want to talk about faith, and I want to address a, a concern about sometimes I think when we use the word faith, when we use the word belief, I don't always think that we use them in a biblical kind of way. And this is an example. We could say, legitimately, looking at this picture, I believe the grass is green. I believe the grass is green. It's mental ascent. What we see tells us the grass is green. I believe that. We could even say, given the rain that we're having now, I have faith that the grass will continue to be green next week. The problem is that that kind of belief, that that kind of faith doesn't make any difference in how we live. Biblical belief, faith in God, makes a difference in how we live. And so Paul holds up the example of Abram for us, and this is where we learn what God said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abram went. He went from where he had been, from everything he had known, from all of his support, all, of, all that he had in Haran, and he went because God sent him. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know where he was going to stop, but he trusted that God would let him know when he got to the place he was supposed to be. Faith in God makes a difference in how we live our lives. Sometimes believing in God means going someplace we hadn't planned on going. Then a couple chapters later in Genesis 15, 
This is a number of years later. Abram is an old man. His wife Sarai is an old woman, and they don't have any children. And, and yet God had made that promise that Abram would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, but he doesn't even have an heir in his own household. And so this is what Abram says to the Lord. You've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Faith sometimes means trusting God even when it doesn't make sense. That's what Abram's example in Scripture shows us. This childless man with a childless wife well beyond the years of starting a family and yet he trusts. He trusts that God's Word is true. Finally, turning a few more chapters over to Genesis chapter 22, we find God and Abram once again speaking, except this time God has changed Abram's name. He has named him Abraham because the name means father of many nations. And Abraham and his wife's name is changed too now to Sarah. Abraham and Sarah have had a son, their firstborn son, their only son, and they have named him Isaac. And they are overjoyed because the heir, their heir is finally present. This long-awaited child of promise is in their midst. And listen to what God says to Abraham at this point in the story. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance God had shown him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how Abraham must have felt loading that wood on young Isaac's back and trudging up the mountain? Can you imagine how Abraham felt, how Isaac felt when he laid his son out on the altar and was ready to plunge the knife in and kill him? Can you imagine? I don't think I can. Can you imagine 
what it would have been like when God stayed Abraham's hand and showed him the ram caught in the thicket that he was to use as a sacrifice instead. That is trusting the Lord. That's what faith in God is like. You see, God didn't have to imagine what it was like for Abraham. God knows. Because God gave his only son, his beloved son. And there was no ram in the thicket to substitute for Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you believe in him. Because real belief sometimes takes us to places we didn't want to go. It sometimes means we have to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. It sometimes means we have to carry on even if we feel like a wayward son or a wayward daughter. Do you believe, wayward son? Do you believe, wayward daughter? Amen. I invite you to